Thanks so much. Uh, Chris, welcome as well. Um, if I've not met you before, my name is uh, Johnny, pastor here, Redeemer. Let's pray as we uh, think about these incredible words together. Heavenly Father, um, we pray so much that your spirit would be at work amongst us this morning. We pray that these words, this account, this historical event would not just be information to us, but it would be the very truth that gives us life. Come to us, we pray now, and preach to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Saw something on uh, BBC One last week. Uh, it's called Soldiers, and it follows new recruits as they go through army training together. And, and there are two things that hit me. I only watched it about 15 minutes. The army is tough. Secondly, I'd never make it in the army. And it's not the running and, and the shooting and the crawling around in the mud. I'll tell you what it is it is the ironing. The, the, the precision with which they have to iron their clothes to, to be able to pass inspection, I would never be able to achieve that. And that is why I would never be able to be in the army. But at one point, they recreate a battlefield situation. And while the recruits are resting, they pretend that an attack is happening. Firecrackers, fireworks, all sorts of things going off, smoke. And the, 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 the captains, whoever they are, screaming, move out, move out. And one of the trainees, uh, one of the trainers rather, said this, what we're looking for is people who don't panic, people who remain calm, Pe people who will then bring a calmness to others. That's kind of Joseph in this chapter. Joseph is the one who doesn't panic. Joseph is the one who saves the world. But of course, this isn't really about Joseph, is it? It is about Joseph's God and how he enables Joseph not to panic and save the world. Let's think about those things. First of all, don't fear, our God creates the future. So Joseph is still languishing in prison at the beginning of this chapter. And while Joseph is languishing in prison, Pharaoh is dreaming. But they're not pleasant dreams. You know, sometimes you have wonderful dreams, don't you? Ticking off the last thing on your to-do list bliss. Driving a train back and forth, not having to worry about anything else. Those are my favorite kind of dreams. You wake up smiling. That is not Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh doesn't wake up smiling. He wakes up panicking. He, his dreams terrify him. L let me show you how we, I, I, I think that's the case. You see, there's a word that keeps coming up in verses one to seven that's actually missing in our translation. And it's missing because we don't really use the word anymore. The word is behold. It's the kind of word you would use to get people's attention, whether something surprising or something shocking. I went for a, a night walk uh, a week or so back with the kids, and we saw the moon, and it was impressive. It was a big harvest moon. And so we said oh, to the kids, oh, wow, look at the size of the moon. In the past, I might have said to Elijah, son, behold, is not the moon of great size this evening? Behold, look. It is all over the description of Pharaoh's dreams. He is shocked, surprised, but not in a good way. Listen, let me read it to you with those beholds in verse one. He was standing by the Nile and behold, out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. And behold, 
Seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek fat cows, and Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream, and behold, seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. Behold, after them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads, and Pharaoh woke up. Pharaoh is shocked by his dreams. And then he retells them in verse 16 to 23. I'm not going to go back through it, but you get all the beholds again and more. And Pharaoh's shock at what he is seeing begins to give way to panic, verse 8, because no one could interpret the dreams. No one could tell Pharaoh what this shocking thing meant. Now, it's at this point that Joseph enters the story. Do you remember last week, Joseph's, uh, rather Pharaoh's kind of chief butler, his cupbearer, had shared a prison cell with Joseph. And this butler remembers how Joseph had interpreted his dreams in prison, and he tells Pharaoh. Look at Pharaoh's reaction, verse 12. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon when he had shaved and changed his clothes. He came before Pharaoh. There's an urgency here. Pharaoh wants Joseph right away. His servants literally run to Joseph. They, they quickly shave him. A bit risky, but they quickly shave him. They, they quickly smarten him up and they rush him back to Pharaoh. See, there is something of a panic here. You have to be desperate, don't you? If you are the king of Egypt, when you're putting all your hope in a slave who is in prison on charges of rape. Pharaoh is panicking. So what is it that he's so unsettled about? What's he seen in these dreams that have filled him with fear? It's this. His gods are failing him. His gods are failing him. Let me explain. The Egyptians worshipped many gods, but two of the most prominent were the Nile and the sun. The river Nile brought water to Egypt and therefore life. The sun brought warmth and heat to cause the crops to, go, uh, to grow. Pharaoh worshipped the Nile and the sun. But what is coming out of the Nile? It's not just the plump cows. It's a nice word to say, isn't it, plump? It's not just the plump cows. It is the ugly cows. The word ugly is evil. Evil is flowing out of the Nile. And then in the second dream, it's the sun bringing evil this time. A wind coming from the east where the sun rises. And this wind scorches and destroys the crops. And then there's an important detail that Pharaoh adds when he retells his dreams to Joseph. Verse 19, after them, behold, seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I've never seen such ugly or evil cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, evil cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as evil 
as before. After eating the good cows, the ugly, evil cows look no different. The evil consumes the good, and there is nothing left of the good. See why he's so panicked? The gods that he worshipped, the gods he hoped in, the Nile and the sun, they are bringing evil into his world. And the evil they are bringing is consuming the good and leaving nothing left. Pharaoh may not fully understand the meaning of the dreams, but something is clear to him. His gods are failing him. Where he looks for goodness and life, the Nile and the sun, he can only see evil eating up all the good. Pharaoh is panicking because his gods are failing. And we're prone to that, aren't we? We are prone to to fear and to panic when, when the gods of our age fail us. I read a book a while back called Scared to Death. It's looking at how quick we are to panic at the first hint of some future disaster. I'm going to name a few. Some of these you've never probably heard of or remember. That's part of the point of the book, I think. But, but some of them you would have heard of. There's mad cow disease. Salmonella poisoning in eggs. There's the millennium bug. Global warming, more contemporary. Could throw in a global pandemic. And look, the point isn't really whether these things really are threats. It's just our reaction to them that's interesting. We panic when it seems as though the gods of our age cannot help. When we can't use technology to invent our way out of this threat or money to buy our way out of it. When we can't use human intelligence and reason to think our way out of danger or science to research our way out of it. Whether it's climate change or COVID or nuclear war or an asteroid hitting the earth, when we think our gods are failing us, we panic. We are scared to death. Brothers and sisters, that is an exhausting way to live. And media, especially social media, loves to fuel that panic. But Joseph shows Pharaoh, and he shows us, a better way and a better God. Because Joseph points us to a power that is truly in control of all things. An authority that you really can build your life upon. Verse 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that you, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Before moving on, I just love, love the humility of Joseph. It's not me that you need. I'm not the one who can help you. It's my God that you need. We thought about this a bit last week, didn't we? But, but what our friends need most isn't us. It's not our company and, and our friendship. It's not our help. They probably do need those things. But what they need most is our God. It is Jesus Christ. Sometimes we just need that extra bit of courage, don't we? To say like Joseph, what you are facing right now, what you're struggling with, my God can help you. 
Come to church. Look at the life of Jesus with me. Let me pray for you. I can't help you, but my God can. And so Joseph is able to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. He's able to tell Pharaoh what is going to happen. There'll be seven years of abundance, followed by seven years of famine. He is able to tell Pharaoh the future because his God knows the future. And just notice this. Our God does not know the future because he can look ahead and see what's going to happen. He's not predicting abundance followed by famine because he studied the weather patterns and the rainfall and the the wind conditions. Now, our God knows the future because he creates the future. Have a look at verse 25. And Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. He says the same in verse 28. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Get it in again in verse 32. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and he will do it soon. See, our God knows the future because he creates the future. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Like the Nile God, like the sun God, the gods of our age will fail us. If we hope in them, then we will panic whenever danger comes. But Joseph's God, our God, this is a God you can build your life on. Because nothing will shock him. Nothing will surprise him. Nothing will outwit him. Nothing will overwhelm him. Nothing will happen that he hasn't foreseen. Because nothing happens except what he has ordained and brought about and created. I don't like roller coasters. The ups and the downs, the the sharp corners, the jerking, not knowing what's coming next. There is absolutely nothing that I like about a roller coaster. But when I've been on them in the past, the way I get kind of get over this, this fear is that I've just told myself, look, the track is laid out. Sit down, strap in, and you will get to the end. Kind of should do it, but you, you, you will get to the end. And if we're trusting in the Lord who creates the future, well, I guess we can approach life in a similar way, can't we? We don't know what will happen. There will be highs and there'll be lows and there'll be sharp corners and there'll be jerking and there'll be dark tunnels and there'll be surprises. But here is the thing. There is a track and the Lord has laid it. None of the highs and lows and sharp corners or dark tunnels are a surprise to him. If I strap myself to God, if I trust in him, he will get me through to the end. You see, don't panic because our God creates the future. So what kind of future is God creating? Secondly, don't fear our God is saving the world. 
So Joseph tells Pharaoh what is going to happen. Seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And then he lays out a plan. And he says to Pharaoh, look, you need to appoint someone, someone wise and discerning, someone who will collect surplus food during the bumpy years so that you can use that in the famine years. Pharaoh likes the plan. Verse 37, the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked him, can we find anyone like this? One in whom is the spirit of God. I love the thought of Joseph just kind of sitting in a corner somewhere, twiddling his thumbs, looking around, and all the officials in Pharaoh's court start turning and looking at Joseph. Can we find anyone like this? Verse 39, Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, There is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people I'll submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh raises Joseph up. And he's gone from being prisoner to prime minister in the space of a day. And the plan works. Seven years of abundance, seven years of famine, and and those seven years hit bad, verse 55. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, or when they were famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Egypt is famished, but Joseph is able to save Egypt. And it's not only Egypt, is it? Verse 57, and all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. All the world. And so suddenly everything begins to make sense about Joseph's life, doesn't it? We we, we now begin to see something of what God has been doing with Joseph from the very beginning, the future that he has been creating. Why did Joseph suffer so much? Why have Joseph kidnapped and sent as a slave to Egypt? Why have Joseph served in Potiphar's house only to end up in prison? Why have Joseph forgotten and languishing in prison? So that he would be in Egypt just when Egypt needed him. So that he could save a starving world. Joseph had to suffer so that he could save. It's kind of what he says, actually, in verse 52. Before the famine hits, he has two children, and one he calls Ephraim. Because, verse 52, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The Lord brought fruit through Joseph's suffering. He brought about the salvation of the world. Joseph had to suffer so that he could save. And you don't have to have been a Christian for very long to spot the obvious connections with Jesus, do you? Jesus had to suffer so that he could save. There are lots of allusions to Jesus in this chapter. I'm just going to pick out one. Just like Joseph brought bread to a starving world, so Jesus brings bread to a starving world. 
In John chapter 6, it'll be on the screen, Jesus has just fed 5,000 plus people with bread. And then he says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Joseph opens the storehouses of Egypt to feed a starving world bread. Jesus opens the storehouses of heaven to give a starving world himself. He is the bread of heaven and the bread of life. But here's the unsettling thing about this chapter. A chapter about gods that are failing. A chapter about famine and starvation. It's unsettling because it is describing our world. Our world is suffering a famine. Not a physical famine, but a spiritual famine. In the past, in the UK, there may have been an abundance in our land. A time when the truths of the Lord were known. At a time when people at least had some knowledge of God and some hope in Christ. But it seems to me that those times have gone. Paul Kingsnorth, who is a, a journalist and a campaigner, reflects on this. This idea that for maybe 1500 years, the truths of the Christian faith have, to a greater or lesser extent, shaped the culture that we live in. But he says, not anymore, he writes... If you are living in the West, you are living among the ruins, and you have been all your life. We are in a time of famine. Spiritually speaking, our nation is famished because we have lost Christ. We are starving. Someone talking about chasing after the fame of celebrity said this, what happens is you, you have the initial thrill of achievement, but it doesn't last. You realize that you need nutrition from a higher source. Celebrity in and of itself is utterly vacuous. It's like being presented with the most glorious meal. And when you eat it, there's no taste. There's no sucker. There's no nutrition. And the only thing that will satisfy our souls. The only thing that will give us life now and life forever is the bread that Jesus offers, which is himself. Brothers and sisters, please hear this. You will be tempted at times to look elsewhere, to find something to nourish you. But there is a famine out there. Head into the world. Embrace the world's gods and you will be left famished. You will discover that there is no taste, no sucker, no nutrition. Emptiness. Jesus is the bread of life. And if we don't feed on him and we don't trust in him and nourish our souls with him, we will die. Jesus is the one who feeds us 
that we might live. And you know, this is one of the reasons why we don't fear the future. Because those of us who are trusting in Christ, the future God is bringing about is salvation. I just want to say, if you've not put your faith in Jesus, this morning is a great time to do that. Chat to me afterwards. I'd love to tell you more about how you can do that. But the future God is bringing about is salvation. And that means the roller coaster that you are on at the moment, it really does have an end. And it will end with a feast. Because we will feast on Christ for eternity. Our souls will feed on the rich, satisfying nourishment of knowing and enjoying and living and serving Christ for all eternity. We will never starve again. So don't panic because the Lord is bringing about salvation. He is saving your soul in Jesus. But look, just as we finish, what do we do in the meantime? How is it you prepare not only for the end when that feast will come, but but everything that's going to happen before then? Well, Pharaoh tells the Egyptians what to do as they wait. Verse 40. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, my people are to submit to your orders. We get it more clearly in verse 55. Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you. How do you prepare for the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years of your life? You go to Jesus and you do everything he tells you. And in his word, he gives us plenty of instructions. He tells you to go to church. He tells you, husbands, to lead your families. He tells you to stay faithful to your wife or or wives to stay faithful to your husbands. He tells you to teach your children the riches of Christ. He tells you to go to work and work as though working for him. He tells you to love your neighbor and care for the poor and the needy and the defenseless. He tells you to spur one another on to greater and greater godliness. Whatever the future, this is what we do. And even when our world gives way, as we were singing earlier on, even if the future is global warming and catastrophic weather, or another pandemic, or a financial crash, or a nuclear war, and the gods of this age fail us, which they will, we don't panic. We know how this roller coaster ends it ends with a feast. And so even in the midst of catastrophe, we continue to look to Jesus and do what he tells us to do. We go to church, we lead our families, we stay faithful, we love our neighbor, we spur one another on, we obey the commands of Christ, we do not panic. Because our God creates the future. Nothing surprises him. And our God is saving the world through Jesus. So don't fear. Our God creates the future. Our God is saving the world through Jesus. Go to him, feed on him, trust in him, and do whatever he tells you as you face the future. 
Remember to quiet and we're going to pray.